Hi, I'm Elise Dayeem, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 15 new Class of 2022 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Janet Reitman, a Class of 2022 ASU Future Security Fellow. Janet is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine, covering extremism, youth, and national security. She's currently at work on a book about the demoralization of post-9-11 America. A former contributing editor at Rolling Stone, she has twice been a finalist for the National Magazine Award. Her first book, Inside Scientology, was a national bestseller. So Janet, congratulations on your acceptance this year. To start, can you tell me more about the fellowship project and what you're hoping to do with your project this year? So my book is about um, the gradual kind of unraveling of our country in a sort of a sociological and psychological way, in a sense, in the years since September 11, though it actually has a 35 or more year span. And it it tells the story of a a number of different people um, over a a, you know, a very long period of time and sort of in an interweaving narrative sense, um, what I'm hoping is that the book will kind of reveal to the readers how we sort of wound up at this place in a sense, like giving a snapshot of, of our society over the past, you know, sort of 30 years and particularly the past 20 years and looking at it from a variety of, of angles, specifically looking at our sort of drift towards a more extremist oriented politics. So I have a few questions specifically about the project, Uh, but before I get to those, you know, I'm curious about your own professional background. You've been covering issues of national security, both domestically and internationally for close to two decades. So what first drew you to reporting on these topics? I covered early, early in my career, I uh, covered a bunch of different conflicts overseas. I was in, um, I covered some conflicts in Africa and the Middle East. I covered the Iraq war. And I also came from a background um, of civil liberties and, and civil rights and human rights. That's part of my family. And so I was always drawn to these themes. And I was very much drawn, particularly in the post 9-11 era, to the way this country was waging the war on terror and the impact that was having on our country versus the kind of society that I grew up in, in, you know, the the 90s, which was a very, very different and um, in many ways, a more, a more peaceful, theoretically safer society, which could be debated. But in in terms of our general outlook towards ourselves as Americans, I think it was, um, we took for granted a lot of our safety. And in the years after 9-11, that went away. And, And I actually thought it went away under false pretenses. And so I was really interested over the past 20 years, essentially, in looking at that and, and the ways in which we've exploited fear and the ways in which we've exploited racism and Islamophobia and, and also um, apathy, in a sense, to kind of arrive at this result, which is a very fraught place. So in your book, uh, from, my, from what I understand and reading your application, that this wave of extremism is not a new phenomenon, but rather can be traced to America's war on terror starting in the early 2000s. Can you elaborate on that and the timeline that you put forward and just the progression of where we started in the early 2000s and where we are today? I actually think this begins in the 1990s, where we saw this kind of populist rage, in a sense, really brewing and bubbling up in the years after the first Gulf War. And this kind of disillusionment and disenfranchisement 
Um, and that's when you saw people like Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. And so this was that was actually the beginning. And I actually deal with that in the book. There are stories about that in my book. Um, but I think in the in the post 9-11 era, you know, as I said, I mean, I think that there are a variety of reasons why we have arrived at the place we're at now. But um, I think the sort of official fear mongering that was very much a part of the Bush administration's um, rhetoric, um, that kind of see something, say something, being, you know, uh, looking at an entire group of people, um, entire ethnic group of people, Muslims, as, as potentially terrorists and, and definitely suspect on some level. That was something that really worked its way into the psyche of, I think, many, many, many Americans, including myself, including my friends, including very, very smart people, people who I know who are very progressive. It was very insidious. And that suspicion and that sort of vague fear, um, because this country was knocked off balance. And so I think that, you know, in order to reckon with the past 20 years, we have to go back and look at that and look at look at exactly what happened during that period. And so that is definitely one of the things I'm looking at. And I have a, a several stories of different people who went through that era and who wound up on um, kind of getting snared up in, in, in the sort of the war on terror dragnet. Are you comfortable talking about some of the ca characters that you're profiling in your book and how you found them? I will not talk directly about the characters in my book because they change. I have a lot of them <laughs> and they are um, they are constantly going through shifts. Um, but I would say that Many of the people in the book are people I have either written about before, or in the case of one or two, they were sources of mine for stories that I had done before. And I just thought they had such interesting stories themselves that I wanted to dig into them. So, you know, there, for example, one person who um, is a character in my book is a former FBI agent who has long, long, long been a source of mine and, um, and, and really helped me understand um, a lot about the FBI and a lot about sort of the domestic terrorism approach that the FBI had or the lack thereof. Um, and uh, and so he's, you know, he's actually a really interesting character. And so he's in my book. And there is a, a sort of the heart of the book in a way is a family um, named uh, the Onischuk family from Massachusetts. And their son was a 19-year-old kid who became a neo-Nazi and wound up getting murdered in a horrible double murder in Florida. And I wrote a big story about that for Rolling Stone. And that actually was the genesis of the book in many ways, because I was so um, interested in his family, who were very, very nice and very understandable sort of upper middle class people that were in lots of ways, they kind of fit no specific type of archetype. They weren't angry Americans. They weren't, you know, they weren't sort of in some way or another sort of locked out of whatever they thought the American dream was. You know, they just did, they didn't fit the profile of people who would be drawn into these ideas, but their son had been, and they'd been so disconnected from that, that it really, they had no idea how it even happened. And so I was really fascinated by, by that. And how is it that you could, you know, kind of raise your kid, all the advantages and, and even understand that they have some issues and you're trying to get help for them and send them to the psychologists and do all these things and not be able to prevent this from happening. And then also not be able to understand even how that happened. And so that's part of the book is, ex, you know, kind of examining 
the online roots of this kind of extremism and um, and just sort of this, this sort of sociological and political backdrop that this kid would have grown up in and that his parents, in fact, also grew up in. So it sounds like this book is really building on years of research, right? And that it's very character-driven in terms of the narrative. And so I know you're still in the process of the reporting and just the you know brainstorming part of thinking about framework and the structure for it. But I'm curious about how you are thinking about weaving these stories together. Do you have a sense of how you plan to approach the narrative itself? So the, the book is entirely character-driven for the most part. It's um, it's not actually a, a typical journalistic narrative, which is unusual for me and um, for most journalists. You know, we just um, don't do stories like that any longer, really, that are just 100% narrative. But that's what this is. And, and I think that structurally, the way I want to make this sort of happen is to essentially tell the stories of, of every single character, of which there are very many, and almost like they're big, long profiles, which is what I've, I've so far done. And then divide, I've divided them into sort of the eras of time and they will weave in and out, you know, of one another. So, so for example, there will be a sort of a section of the book that would look at say the 1990s and there'll be a number of, cha- of characters in that section who we will meet again and again and again. And so we want to follow these people through time, but we want to follow time as well. So we don't want to just tell one person's story and the next person's story. We sort of want to sort of almost echo against one another as we read through the book. And so that's sort of how I'm organizing it. Um, I, do, I think it's the most successful way to, to organize it, but it's something that I really do need to work on with an editor because it's it's really hard. And so that's that's sort of the main goal that I have with my editors to look at our structure and figure out if this is really the right way. And if some of these characters, in fact, are going to have to go <laughs> because um, if you're going to keep that structure, there's just a lot of moving parts. But I have a really, really firm belief in this kind of approach because I don't find books about this kind of topic that are not deeply character driven as interesting. Unfortunately, I just, I think they're interesting for me and they're interesting for my colleagues and they're interesting for a sort of a certain type of person that is very invested in this stuff. But I think for the average reader, they don't go anywhere and I want it to go somewhere. I want people to engage with this. I want people to start thinking about these issues and having a conversation about these issues. And so I think the only way to do that is really through character um, and so the challenge is to kind of structurally approach it in a way that will be accessible. Hmm. Yeah, piggybacking off of your response there, what impact do you hope this book then has in terms of this broader conversation around extremism, domestic extremism today? Well, first of all, I think that the conversation should not be around domestic extremism or, you know, jihadism itself or something like that. It, it, I think it should be around what it meant to declare a war on terror. And how, how broad that is and how in some ways vague that is and how that can lead to a lot of abuse and misunderstanding and lazy kind of approaches and um, lack of critical thinking. And, um, and then in some ways like open and overt outright abuse of power. And I think that that is what we need to discuss. I think that the, the big thing that happened after September 11 was it was a very traumatizing, shocking experience for not only New Yorkers like myself who lived through it and witnessed it and, you know, breathe the air, but for many other Americans who were just, you know, kind of 
traumatized through video. It was like almost a Pavlovian experience where you were constantly being re-traumatized by these images um, in commercials, in news reports, in annual commemorations over and over and over the same burning building, the same people jumping out of the towers, the same stuff. It was very, very traumatic. And for many, many people who were born um, before 2001 and who were you know, even young adults before 2001, it represented a sea change in thinking. And it was very, very clear lines were drawn at that point where you were either, you know, on board with the mission, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists, you're either on board or you're not. And if you're not, then, you know, you were vaguely suspect on some level. And I think that that is the conversation that we need to have because that is what's echoed you know, year after year, decade after decade, and has continued to echo. And it doesn't necessarily just apply to how we look at Muslims or how we look at environmental activists or how we look at groups like Antifa, quote unquote, or or even frankly, how we look at members of the far right who have, you know, they have ideas that many of us may find noxious, but they are allowed to have those ideas as long as they are not violent. And there's been a kind of a shift in, in that we are looking at everybody through more of an ideological lens. That's something that that's very much a post 9-11 kind of phenomenon. And I think that's had a very deep impact on not only like, you know, how we've actually executed, you know, the laws, but what it means to us to be Americans. You know, what is it, what does democracy mean? You know, what is, what is free, you know, freedom of thought? What does civil liberties mean? And we've seen an erosion of those rights and freedoms over the past 20 years. And so I think that that really, that's the conversation that I'd love this book to start, um, if possible. So online platforms have come under fire for their role in disseminating far-right ideologies. And so I'm curious about your perspective on them. Um, What role do you believe the internet plays in spreading these messages? And who do you think is most susceptible to them? I think the internet plays a huge, huge role in disseminating these ideas, far-right ideas or any other extremist ideas. Um, It has become a kind of a a, a cesspool for extremist thinking, no matter what that may be. And there are just an abundance of sites and, and platforms and venues for people to connect you know, through and, um, and it doesn't have to be Facebook and it doesn't have to be Twitter and it doesn't have to be someplace that you've heard about. It can be these, you know, very tiny, small kind of, um, communications platforms that, um, that real sort of more hardcore extremists have used for a long time. So I, I, you know, I think young people are very susceptible to these ideas, but I also think that people with time on their hands are susceptible. And frankly, when you look at what happened on January 6th, you can't remove the pandemic from that moment because this was a period of time, those that year prior to January 6th, 2021 was, or whatever it was, nine months, was a period of time that this country was on lockdown. And you had a ton of people with much more time on their hands that they'd ever had who were spending tons of time online um, and you know, buying into as crazy as it sounds, buying into these conspiracy theories. I mean, it's it's something that happened to the brain. And I, you know, I've had many conversations with people about how their brains began to unravel during this period of time. And so um, 
it, you can't just sort of look at this and go, oh, it's just, you know, just disenfranchised kids or screwed up teenagers or disgruntled veterans. It, it's, it's tons of different kinds of people. And I think that, you know, the people that are most, most susceptible to it are people with the opportunity to spend time delving into it. Um, I actually also think that very intelligent people, which this is counterintuitive, but very intelligent, very bright people, particularly kids, get very sucked into this stuff because they're curious and they're looking for some answer or some story that they haven't been told in school. I think our education system, public education system has failed kids in many ways. And so the very bright kids often are not all that challenged and they're looking for ways to challenge themselves or they're, you know, they're looking to debate. And so that's what goes on on these sites. You know, there used to be this one site called Iron March, which no longer exists, but that was um, the meeting place for sort of the fast, the international fascist community. And these kids and young men and middle-aged men, probably too, mostly men, would gather and debate the finer points of, you know, Evola, <laughs> you know, or Nietzsche or some other writing that was, you know, either outright neo-Nazi or fascist or something like that sort of veered in that direction. And, you know, they were, um, they would get heavily into analyzing these different ideas and different philosophers and, and different organizations. And, you know, there were all kinds of far-right organizations from all over the world that, um, that had a kind of a, a presence on this one platform. And it was really, really interesting to read their backs and forths and, and you know, to understand that, that these aren't, you know, idiots. These are really intelligent people. And it made me very uncomfortable reading a lot of this. I was like, you know, I mean, there were plenty of, uh, you know, plenty of people that were very screwed up, but there was intelligence behind a lot of this. There was thought behind a lot of this. There was genuine curiosity behind a lot of this. So, you know, those are qualities that we want to encourage in people. And so the question is, how does it get so twisted that it goes in this direction? Yeah, that's a good point. And so I'm curious then, where do you think some of the most effective policy change will come from in terms of addressing this moment? I really think in terms of young people anyway, that we have to have some kind of an educational shift. We have to have some kind of policies in education. For example, there are like seven states in our country, and I would need to check that figure, but it's something like that, seven, maybe eight, that uh, where the state compels public schools to educate kids about the Holocaust. Everywhere else, it's optional. So you have you know, states in this country where they've never, they don't know anything about that. And so they then can easily believe that it was made up or it was overblown or that, you know, the Jews are making too big of a deal of this or that, you know, they, they, they've used this in order to gain more power or whatever the conspiracy theories are. There are many pertaining to Jews. And, but that is because there's no education. And we're now at a point, and I'm just naming that as one example. We're now at a point because the root of far right extremism, you know, it, at the root of it is always this hatred of the Jews. Always, it doesn't matter how they want to phrase it, whether they want to call them globalists or or whoever. It all goes back to like the protocols of the elders of Zion and and things like that. And so, 
you know, we're now at a place where the generation that lived through the Holocaust are, are you know, dying off and very few people left, you know, they're in their nineties. So that should be remedied. And I think, you know, they've done a good job in, in Germany, for example, but we have not done a good job in this country. And that's something that could, you know, immediately be looked at is, you know, what, how is our education system not addressing this problem? Um, I don't think the answer is to shut down the internet or, you know, kick these sites off of, off of Twitter or Facebook because they will only reinvent themselves. That's the nature of technology. And I don't think the answer is to pass more laws to punish domestic terrorism in the same way that we punished international terrorism. I don't think we need to make everything very punitive because I actually also think that those kinds of statutes, like a, like a domestic terrorism statute, for example, I'm, I'm one of the people that believes that will be used against progressives, the left, you know, meaning anarchists and progressive activists and civil rights activists like Black Lives Matter and minorities and any, anyone else who is not part of the, the, the power structure of our country. You know, that's a, that's a position that the civil libertarians have, and I also have that position. Many other people do not believe that, but I, I definitely do based on everything that I've reported over the years. And so I think that's not necessarily the way we should go. Um, but I do think education is the way we could go. And I don't know, you know, I think I don't have that answer. That's one of the things I'm thinking about and looking at, and maybe we'll learn more about or think more deeply about as this book, you know, moves towards the very final stages. But it's a very hard question what, what the policy changes or implications of all of this should be. So as you embark on your fellowship project this year, where do you hope to be with it a year from now? Done. <laughs> done. Done, done, done. Um, I am about more than halfway through. And I hope to be done with the first, certainly with the first draft and working on revisions and possibly even done with those revisions. It depends on, on really what my editors, what my editor and I sort of decide um, actually in the next few weeks on how much I've already written is going to stay and how much needs to, you know, still needs to be done and how much needs to be like thrown out and potentially be redone. So there's a lot of that that we're going to be discussing, but I, I hope that I'll be pretty much done with the, at least the first draft of this. Great. Well, we're thrilled to support you this year and to see your project take shape. Thank you for your time today, Janet. Thank you so much. I'm really excited about this. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit newamerica.org fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2022.